The following Taisho by Shinge Roshi, Roko Sheri Shayat, was recorded at the Zen Center of Syracuse Hoenji in Syracuse, New York. These recordings are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. Good morning. As I think everyone knows, uh, Kentoku's father passed away. And I was speaking with him on the phone shortly after. And he said, Everything has changed. I no longer have any assumptions about what reality is. The only thing is to understand this great matter of birth and death. As a number of you know, when we suffer a loss or get handed a terrible health diagnosis or have some other very disruptive event in our lives. We have this strong feeling. We can't go on the way we were we have a feeling that was not it. We have a strong questioning. What is reality after all? We chant when I, a student of Dharma, look at the real form of the universe. How many of us actually look hmm, when we say those words? We go from unquestioning assumption to assumption until we're shaken. I don't usually find the business section to be of great interest. After all, what do I know about most of the things that are discussed? But sometimes something quite wonderful is in the New York Times Sunday business section. And today, it's about the CEO of Aetna, the health insurer. So along with assumptions, I think many of us have some prejudice. I have prejudice against the great corporate insurance world, the great corporate pharmaceutical world, the great corporate farming industry, the great, you name it, I'm, I'm prejudiced against it. That's 
part of why I don't really find engagement in the business section. Nonetheless, that's my personal problem. So I try to keep an open mind and at least look at the headlines. Today I found a wonderful story. It's called A CEO's Management by Mantra. This is about Mark T. Bertolini. He's 58 years old, sitting in his office in Hartford, Connecticut, running one of America's hundred largest companies in terms of its revenue. And it seems that in 2004, actually it was February 18th, 2004, he had a skiing accident and his body ricocheted off a tree and over a ledge, sending him careering 30 feet down a ravine. At the intensive care unit, a priest administered last rites. He had five vertebrae in his neck, fractured. All the nerves in his left arm had been detached from his spinal cord. Somehow he pulled through and left the hospital after 12 days. And after that, he was given all kinds of pain medication, Oxycontin, Vicodin, fentanyl. The drugs barely helped. So he started investigating alternatives and soon began practicing yoga and mindfulness meditation. He said, meditation is not about thinking about nothing. It's about accepting what you think, giving reverence to it and letting it go. It's losing the attachment to it. Same thing with pain. He still has terrific pain in his left arm. But this new way of seeing his pain has made all the difference. So he began uh, this regimen of yoga and meditation and became chief executive of Aetna and thought, well, why, if this is helping me, shouldn't I extend it to my employees? So gradually he began, without trying to push anyone into it, offering these classes. And soon had a curriculum going, taking inspiration from John Kabat-Zinn, who is the pioneer of mindfulness-based stress reduction, which Ishin teaches here on Wednesday nights. And they found that the people who were taking these classes were having a tremendously different feeling about what they were doing at work and that their health care costs dropped quite a bit. And all sorts of other wellness initiatives were introduced. And then... There was a productivity gain for the company. And he decided that he would 
increase Aetna's minimum wage to $16 an hour from $12 an hour. So all around the country, everyone working for Aetna Insurance got raises. And he said, if we can create a healthier you, we can create a healthier company and a healthier world. So this is something that is quite inspiring to read about, to hear about, right? And this is the kind of thing that really makes you drop your assumptions. Here was someone who had a radical experience of something extremely difficult, and that radical experience carried over into the ways in which he is now living and he is extending this mind, right? Extending this mind. There's a difference between mindfulness, meditation, and Zen. The difference, perhaps, is one of uh, intention. So I think many people may start Zen practice from the point of view of finding some uh, alleviation of their fundamental dis-ease, just as Shakyamuni Buddha, when he went out from the palace, wanted to do, seeing someone who is ill, seeing someone who is old, seeing a corpse. What can I do? There's so much suffering. I think mindfulness meditation can become something that is very popular, and it already has everywhere, right? On campus, wellness initiatives of all kinds incorporating meditation and yoga. But look around. How many people are in the room? You guys are the Marines. There's something that we feel through Zen practice that takes that gratitude for wellness coming from incorporating things like meditation and yoga and going further, questioning assumptions, looking at this matter of birth and death, Asking questions, why am I here? Is it just to feel a little better? I think most of you are probably familiar with the koan, since I've done many of the koans here. Case 32 of the Mumonkan, a non-Buddhist philosopher questions the Buddha. Remember? Some? Hmm? A few of you? The non-Buddhist philosopher may have been like this corporate person from Aetna. So this philosopher asked, I do not ask for words. I do not ask for non-words. This was his question, just this question without even saying, 
What is it? I do not ask for words. I do not ask for non-words. And then waited for Buddha's response. How did Buddha respond? He sat. And then the philosopher said, the world-honored one with his great compassion has blown away the clouds of my illusion and enabled me to enter the way. What is it to experience this just sat? Obviously, this non-Buddhist philosopher was ready. Otherwise, what might he have said? Come on, tell me. What's it all about? He got it. And I'm sure you know the story of One day in town, Buddha was walking along and someone saw him and asked the question, Are you a god? The Buddha said, No. Are you an angel? The Buddha said, No. Well, what are you then? The Buddha said, I am awake. I've been reading a wonderful book over a long period of time. It's, um, I may have referred to it in the past. It's, it's by Evan Thompson, who is the son of a very famous uh, philosopher William Irwin Thompson and it's called Waking I am awake Dreaming and Being and in this book he writes about his experiences with lucid dreaming and also about the Tibetan practice of dream yoga. What is it to awaken from our dream? What is it to be awake? You may wonder. We take the reality around us and within us to be real, right? But you all know how the Diamond Sutra ends. Who can say? The phantom and the dream. That's how it ends, right? That verse ends. Thus, all composite things, everything you think that is real is an illusion based on the fact that you are not awake. When the Buddha said, I am awake, this is what he was saying. You too can wake up from your illusory notions of being here in this body, this temporary fleeting form. 
that we take for something unchanging and substantial. And what's the problem in that? What happens when we take this fleeting form as something to defend and protect against all others? We suffer. This is our fundamental misapprehension of reality. Anyway, he says, what dream yoga does is it it challenges the assumption that reality is independent of the mind. Dream yoga asks us to view waking experience as a dream, while also teaching us how to wake up within the dream state. To view our waking experience as a dream is what the Diamond Sutra is telling us. All composite things are like a dewdrop, a flash of lightning, a bubble in a stream, a phantasm and a dream. He also gets into the scientific study of brain and mind, the consciousness of how the mind affects the brain. So I wanted to read a couple of things. The dream world and the waking world both seem real and solid. Yet in neither case do we realize that whatever we take to be real and solid is always a mode of appearance, something that appears real in one way or another, and that modes of appearance, by their very nature, can't be separated from the mind. As we all have read many times in the Dhammapada, we are what we think. It's mind that creates whatever we are going through, whether it's physical, emotional, mind. When we take it to be real and solid, fear comes up, right? All kinds of emotions come up. He says, by contrast, full and complete lucidity, where we wake up in the dream state and directly experience it as luminous appearance, empty of substantiality, offers a traditional metaphor for liberation and enlightenment. Buddha means fully awakened one. This metaphor isn't meant to deny the conventional reality of our waking world. It aims rather to effect a fundamental shift in our understanding of what it means for something to be real. What is real? I'm sure you ask this every day, right? What is real? What is it that I'm taking to be real? At the same time, I notice that it's always shifting, always changing. How many of you have had lucid dreams? It often brings people to religious way of life, spiritual practice. These lucid dreams are like openings where we can question. We're aware of dreaming in a dream. We can actually 
change the dream. Take the dream elsewhere. Go through that wall that seems so solid. Make that fundamental shift. Real, he says, is the name we give to certain stable ways that things appear and continue to appear when we test them. Not the name for some essence hidden behind or within appearances. He also says, it's easier to transform negative emotions such as fear or anger into positive mental states. Now, I'm sure this is something you have wondered about, right? Everybody here has had some negative emotion in the last day or so, yes? I don't mean necessarily feeling, you know, irritable with someone or angry at someone, but maybe just some sort of feeling of apprehension, a kind of vague concern, fear. It's easier to transform, he says, when we can see those emotions as modes of appearance rather than substantial realities. And this is really what we're doing in Zen practice. We're seeing everything that we take as real. We're seeing that everything is a mode of appearance, not a substantial reality. So Daigon's bumper sticker is such a wonderful one to keep continuously in our questioning of what is real. Can you please tell us? You don't have to believe everything you think. We think, right? We believe everything we think. Whatever we think, we think is real. And this creates all kinds of, as you said, suffering. Normally, we attribute suffering to conditions, circumstances, situations, other people. Yes? How many of you, right now, think about it, have attributed your current dis-ease, suffering, whatever it is, to a condition, a substantial condition. I think I can safely say that we all do this all the time. So many of you are experiencing through your deepening practice Moments of being completely awake, completely aware, not dependent on your attachment to some temporary condition. When we chant Kanzayon and we end with Mu shout, this Mu shout, we are just everything. All of our holding on to views, our belief in our thoughts, all of that, gone, right? At least for 
a millisecond after shouting moo, yes? And then things start flooding back, right? So then luckily the Eno strikes the bell and reminds us, when I, a student of Dharma, look at the real form, and all moves. all, you know, all we need in morning service, right? When I, a student of Dharma, this is it, immediately. But what happens even to uh, people we may admire, people we may feel the way this non-Buddhist philosopher felt, the way the person walking on the street felt seeing the Buddha. Wow. This really, wow, something. This person has something. And then we, begin, we can become quite disappointed when that person we admire that way falls into some kind of uh, clinging or misapprehension or confusion or some perhaps idea of self that becomes self-aggrandizing, some perversion of that just clear, lucid motion, right? Those of you who are teaching meditation, whether it's at Syracuse University or Hamilton or Colgate or the prisons or any place whatsoever where you may be guiding others in your own home, some church basement, where you feel people are looking to you for guidance, what is the most important thing? That you have your own practice, very solid, and a very solid isn't the right word. I think that's true, having your own practice and feeling solid in that practice, but that can become something dangerous when you feel I'm solid in my practice, right? It's hard to put that into words. I understand where you're coming from. What is it that you have to feel when you, you're describing something important? Maybe, uh, maybe we can look at a different way of putting it. Confidence. Confidence? In what? Can express to these people and Again, that's dangerous, isn't it? I have something to express to you. Yeah, I would say it's not pushing and to um, feel for where the person is. So feeling where the person is means there's no one home. That's true confidence when there is no self-teaching. We really have a misunderstanding of the word confidence. And I know you don't, Daigon. I know why you said what you did. It comes from this no-self. Confidence in no-self is really important. When you have confidence in the fact that you have something to offer, that's where you run into trouble. Humility 
is probably the key here to get out of the way. Don't go in thinking, I have something to teach you. Then you really can get trapped in the kind of uh, eventual uh, perversion of this mind. Thinking it has something substantial that you need to impart. I think what um, is surprising sometimes is how much meditation some people have had or how little people understand about meditation. So your own um, projections questioned. Yeah, it's really an issue. Many people who have done a lot of meditating feel they have something. And... It takes a while to realize how important it is to have nothing. But in the beginning, certainly, people want to be applauded for whatever they feel they have won from their uh, meditative forays. So it's an interesting thing for us when we're teaching the most significant thing is to get out of the way, not come on as an authority. Exploitation can take place in very subtle ways. Whenever you feel, oh, I have a view to impart, that's dangerous. Whenever you feel these people are looking up to me because I'm a long-time meditator, that's dangerous. So the Tibetans have a wonderful word, a very simple word, which I've spoken of before, which is check. Check your motivation. Check the way you're coming across. Always check. Look within. What are you really doing? What are you really conveying? Are you there conveying it? That's a problem. So to meet people where they are means you're out of the way, right? You're just one with feeling what they are feeling. This is, of course, the meaning of compassion. To be with no agenda. No, this is the way things should be. No clinging to this is the way things were. What things? The real form of the universe. What is that? No form. No feeling, no thought, no volition, no consciousness. So this is Zen practice. To dare, to dare, to question everything. So, with a daring mind, Let us go forth.